Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And it's Spooktober. And I'm so tired. <laughs> I just, just have empty cobwebby brains. Yes. So my so uh, patrons of the show will know that um, I've been in just like the heaviest season of work lately. And so I, my... Mm, not great. Things aren't great <laughs> if you are not my workload at my job. Uh, but it's it's Spooktober, and that is the most special time of the, the year. Spookiest my, time. It's my favorite mm. time of the year, and so we can't let Spooktober go by unobserved. <laughs> and so I had the, I had really grand plans, and these plans are not scrapped they are shelved Mm. um really like for a really um phenomenal series that i was going to do and i can say that because it would be relying on the work and voices of other people not my (laughs) own so i feel comfortable saying it was phenomenal and it will be um will be it will be uh but not in 2022 so that's but that's fine um because I pivoted. engaged in my I engaged in my creative process mm. um, and and really looked within to be like what what can I do for Spooktober and so I um, or what can Spooktober do for you uh, what can't it do for me um, not get me out of work obligations Sadly. that is one thing Sadly. it can't do can't let you uh, but so. What we're doing. Yes. Dr. Anna Goldfield. Says. <laughs> um, no. Uh, so what we're going to do this month is, uh, and this may be the f- first, no, last year, I think I definitely shared like sort of the, the over the, 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 the thread that tied it all together were things that I'm afraid of. <laughs> Uh, this year is not things that I'm afraid of. We just, no. Oh gosh. I, I just abandonment. I was just like disappointment. <laughs> just like, <laughs> no, we're not doing, we're not doing that to Anna. Um, what we're doing instead is we're going to look at the classics. Um, not, 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 not the we, Greek and Ro- not, Roman ones, not Greek room. Greece, Rome, and Etruria. No, uh, we're looking at sort of like classic horror tropes. More of them. We're getting back to back to back to the classics. My roots. Yeah. yeah. So we're getting back to the classics. And since I extremely didn't have time to <laughs> write a new script, I decided to tap into my greatest resource of all, Anna. Hello. And we're going to do a little bit of a classic ourselves. Um, and so we are. Going back to episode 18 <laughs> of the show. The ghost um, of episodes past. 
So our our A A's one from day one uh-huh. um, will know that this was an episode about Claude Holland, and not only was this two hundred and so episodes ago, um, and we've gotten better at doing this, but also archaeology writ large has gotten better at doing this. Yeah. Vis-a-vis the subject of Clyde Holland. So no spoilies. Nope. But at the end of the episode, we will have updates because there have been some because it was four years ago. So <laughs> we're going to run through those at the end of the episode. So as spoiling the twist. Yeah. The twist. Uh, All right. So yeah. let's kick it to pass so, us. Yeah. Oh. Well, how are we doing? <laughs> well, here we go. We are celebrating Spooktober with some eerie archaeology stories all month long. Yep, and I've even got my super spooky voice on. Amber's been sick. I've been sick, but I'm back and I'm ready for this. This is what's giving me life, possibly literally. So (laughs) we are sustained on spook. (laughs) So to start us off right. Let's head over to Britain, where the origins of the holiday that we now celebrate as Halloween are thought to be found in Samhain, which is a holiday marking the end of the harvest season and the beginning of the inevitable slide into winter, the darker half of the year. It's it's that holiday that's spelled Samhain, but it's it's not pronounced. (laughs) No, I wasn't gonna. That one was for you. Make your Samhain joke. Oh, no, I was just imagining a little dude in a cowboy hat going, hi, I'm Sam Hain. That's all. Anyway, it's pronounced Samhain. <laughs> Join me, dear listener, as I take Anna through a dark and stormy tale of archaeology most malign that begins more than 3,000 years ago on a blustery island of South Wisht in the Outer Hebrides, part of what is today Scotland. So it's Wisht, according to... The man on Wikipedia. Um, but it's also a pre-Gaelic word. So nobody knows what it means. And I bet we've all been saying it wrong. But before I get into the grisly details of what happened at Southwest, let's build some tension by way of context. So Anna, get contextualizing. Yes, ma'am. I will do that. Okay. All right. Um, I assign I assigned material for Anna to read. Yes, so that she wouldn't. (laughs) I was absolutely not allowed to look up anything having to do with Amber's actual story. I was only given peripheral things. So, to that end, uh, let's travel back to Bronze Age Britain and uh, a case study of the Pompeii of Cambridgeshire in, in the way that everything has to have an analog. This is the case study of Must Farm, which is... It's it's the name of the place, but also <laughs> it's down the road from Can Farm, <laughs> Should Farm, and then just over the hill, Can Farm, and then by the river, it's Must Farm. So uh, it truly is by the river. It's by the River Cam, from which Cambridgeshire gets its name. Huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> the bridge over the River Cam. The site has been described as the British Pompeii, but just in the sense of another town that just got destroyed quickly and in a way that preserved lots of things. So otherwise the two places aren't really very much alike. Pompeii was destroyed in a a volcanic blast. Oh, did you see that new research that came out about the, the victims of Pompeii? 
No. Okay, it's... <laughs> Did it's, you tweet it to me? Probably. It's super <laughs> spooky content, so I'm going to tell you just because it fits, but they did analysis about the temperatures that would cause charring visible on some of the human bones oh, and, no. and sort of the directionality of the bones. Yeah, it's not good. So, you know, warning to, to oh. people who are sensitive to extreme body damage here. Skip ahead about 35 seconds. <laughs> but uh, they determined that the heat blast that came off of Mount Vesuvius would have been enough to kill people by uh, making their body fluids boil. So wow. they died. They died pretty instantaneously. So, so somebody opened the Ark of the Covenant. Pretty much, the the top blew off the Ark of the Covenant, and a heat oh. blast came out that was so hot that people's brains melted and bubbled. So okay, well, actually, this isn't as bad as I thought it would be. I thought that this was going to be about like people suffering. No, I think it would have been pretty pretty quick. Okay, so um, wow, that's probably sitting in your well, Twitter inbox but, for you. Okay. Well, that didn't happen at Must Farm. It sure didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> in this case, the town was uh, destroyed by fire, which is not much better. But um, Must Farm is believed to be the best preserved Bronze Age dwellings ever found in Britain. Um, so the houses were destroyed by a fire that caused the settlement, which was built on stilts by the river. So that's cool in itself. Uh, sort of the Venice of the Bronze Age. Um but the fire caused the buildings to collapse into the shallow river beneath, and then the the soft river silt at the bottom sort of swallowed up the remains of the charred buildings and all of their contents. And so the the homes and the things that were in them survive in extraordinary detail. And so And then the river the river has the river changed its course since then? And that's how we the, they excavated it. Yeah, I believe so. Okay, um, I think. But they're it not is just now. like they're not excavating in the river, right? They're not in the river, but they are in an area called the the Cambridge Fens, and a fen is sort of a it's like a peat bog, but it's specifically an alkaline environment. I mean, it's it's very much a spooky like the fens and the moors. They're very sort of mist shrouded, Jane Eyre type, gloomy places. You know, like the Hound right. of the Baskervilles. Is kind of in that right? Yeah. That okay. Zone. Yeah. I'm just building the spook here. I am. No, that's okay. <laughs> crafting an atmosphere, Amber, that's for fine. your for your tale of horror. Let me build it. Play well, with me in this space. Place. Okay. Sure. So here's a quote from Professor Charles French from the Division of Archaeology. The excellent preservation of the site is due to deposition in a waterlogged environment, the exclusion of air, and the lack of disturbance to the site. The timber and artifacts fell into a partly infilled river channel where they were later buried by more than two meters of peat and silt. So um, not only are they not exposed to oxygen, but they were charred on the surface because uh, of that fire. And so that charring actually helped to preserve a lot of the wood and other materials. So what is At Must Farm? So like I said, it's a series of um, small houses built on stilts. And so the site has revealed the largest collections in Britain of Bronze Age textiles, beads, domestic wooden artifacts, and those include buckets, platters, troughs, shafts, and handles, and domestic metalwork. So farming tools like axes, sickles, hammers, uh, and then things like spears, gouges, razors, knives, and awls. And it's also yielded a wide range of household items. So there are all of these um 
complete sets, which is really neat. You rarely get that of, of storage jars, cups and bowls, and some even have food residues still inside. Most of the pots are unbroken and they're made in the same style, which is really cool. We don't see that very often in, in Bronze Age Britain where you have um, lots of things from evidently the same manufacturer. Basically, what oh. we get is this whole snapshot of life at Must Farm from how they got their food to how they cooked their food, what they ate, uh, what they threw away, things that they built and things that they built with, so their tools. So in this case, it's not as much what we see usually in the archaeological record of things that have been discarded, but it's things that have been preserved in a sort of perfect snapshot of a day in the life. So it's always exciting when this happens, you know, if you can sort of separate yourself from tragedy and loss, uh, you know, the actual repercussions of this particular event. But thousands of years later, what we get is is very exciting to us in terms of recreating the, the story of the people who lived there. The textiles, that's really exciting. That's something that we don't usually get from that long ago. So um, textile production at Must Farm was actually uh, really advanced for for the time and place. All textiles appear to have been made from plant fibers, so rather than from wool or other animal hair. The people at Must Farm used cultivated species, such as flax, as well as wild plants, such as nettle and even trees, so like the inner bark from trees, to obtain raw materials. And flax provided the finest fibers and was used to weave incredibly fine linen fabrics on a loom. So we know that this was loom weaving. Something I read said that the strands of linen that were used, sorry, the strands of flax that were used to make the linen were about the width of uh, a human hair. So this was delicate, delicate stuff. Um, So can you you explain how flax becomes linen? I think I can. So it's, I believe it's the flax stalk. So flax is uh, a grass, I think. It's a grassy plant. And basically what you do is you, you beat it until the fibers of the plant separate. And then Mm -hmm. you can refine those fibers and, and spin them into, into linen thread. And you can, you know, the more time that you spend in processing and, and the more, the more skilled you are and the more experienced you are, you can produce very, very fine thread, which is what they did here. And they also uh, appear to have used other wild plants uh, for coarser fabrics made with a different technique known as twining. Another uh, very rare find from Must Farm includes two well-preserved Bronze Age tripartite wheels. So these attest to a world beyond the river because (laughs) not so easy to use wheels on a river unless it's a, you know, a paddle wheel. But these weren't. These were cartwheels. Um, So they're had to have been an ongoing relationship between the wetland settlement and adjacent dry land, people on dry land. So despite the site situation in a wetland, the majority of the surviving material speaks of an economy based on dry land. So that's interesting. These people were producing goods, uh, not just for themselves, but for trade elsewhere to the drier parts of the world. So what are (laughs) tripartite wheels? (laughs) So what are tripartite wheels? These are wooden cartwheels made of three wooden boards held together by two horizontal bracers that are secured with dovetail joints. These particular wheels were made of oak and had half moon shaped dugouts on either side of it that were probably decorative elements, but also they had the bonus effect of decreasing the weight of the wheel. So in a watery environment, if you were trying to move a cart out of swampland, um, the less heavy the wheel, the less likely your your cartload is to sink into the mud. 
the surface of these wheels are charred, but um, it's radiant charring. So it means that it wasn't directly in the flame, but it was nearby enough so that the radiant heat caused the wood to char. And then here, there was a section in the articles that I read called stuffication in the Bronze Age, which is a term I do not enjoy, but it's this general idea of accumulating too much stuff. kind of a good way of describe how I feel right now. (laughs) Are you stuffocated? I'm stuffocating, yeah. Uh, Well, in this sense, it means just sort of what we think of kind of as a modern ailment is the accumulation of too much material stuff. But um, David Gibson, the archaeological manager at the Cambridge Archaeological Unit, uh, has said that this this picture of domestic activity uh, and this sort of um, complete set of dwellings and their contents is an indicator that, quote, stuffocation is, uh, may have been a much earlier problem than we'd ever imagined. Well, just because, like, a lot of stuff was preserved? Yeah, exactly. So, I, like, people always have had stuff. Yeah. It just the farther back in time you go, the less likely a lot of it is to preserve. So we get an incomplete picture. But this is an instance where a few what? thousand years ago. Oh, man, I hope I really hope that this is like this guy misquoted and not like a they're going all I this mean, stuff. Like, like, it just, no, 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 it's like, not, he's not, no, he's not surprised that, that they have problem. all this stuff. No, no, no. He's just saying that seeing what, how people actually lived and having a much more complete picture means that we do get this sense of continuity between, between 3000 years ago and now, which is like, you, you're surrounded throughout your life by your stuff. So I don't see a problem with having stuff around you. I mean, I'm all about minimalism, but like, it's sort of like. They got clothes. They got objects. They got things to sit on. They got things to eat. Yep. Gosh, these guys are really materialistic. I, I guess, like, who are you? Who are you, sir, to decide how much stuff is too much stuff for these people in the Bronze Age? They're just trying to live. Just trying to live their Bronze Age lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 3,000 years ago, what did people wear? So Yeah, since we got all this stuff, let's see what they, <laughs> see what it is. Well, some of the stuff is for them. Some of it is not. So the community living in these roundhouses were making their own high quality textiles like linen. And like I said, some of the woven linen fabrics are made with threads as thin as the diameter of a coarse human hair. Um, So textiles were common in the Bronze Age. Like, of course, people weren't walking around naked. And uh, we know they had textiles. Uh, Not everyone was dressed in animal fur all the time. Um, but it's very rare for textiles to survive today. So it's really neat to see, um, especially the finer work that was coming out of Must Farm. What did these people eat? Wild animals, for one thing. Um, wild animal remains were found in rubbish dumps outside the houses. And that shows that they were eating uh, things like wild boar, red deer, elk, and freshwater fish, such as pike. So inside the houses, the remains of young lambs and calves have been found, revealing a mixed diet. So they were agriculturalists, but also supplementing their food with with wild game. Um, while it is common for late Bronze Age settlements to include farm animals, it's actually pretty rare to find wild animals being equally uh, represented in the diet. Uh, plants and cereals, not like Cap'n Crunch and whatever, but cereal grains, were also an important part of the Bronze Age diet. And so we see the charred remains of things like porridge type grain foods, emmer wheat and barley grains. And uh, these grains sometimes were even found preserved inside the bowls they were served in. 
Oh man. So they're just like sitting down for breakfast and then somebody and everything's like on fire. kicked over the veal that was cooking. So on to household goods. Each of the houses was fully equipped. Jealous much? <laughs> right? Uh, with pots of different sizes, wooden buckets and platters, metal tools, things called saddle querns, which have nothing to do with saddles except that they are shaped like saddles. It's a, a stone tool for grinding grain and it yeah, happens use to be a, saddle shaped. because Use a quern for your corn. <laughs> a corn corn, but they probably didn't have corn. But corn is a general term. It it's is. It's like the... You can have a barley corn. It is a small... Yeah. A, a, a little kernel of a grain. So um, Ceres is referred to as the goddess of the corn, even though there's no corn, because people were using the word corn before they came to North America, and we're like, look at this corn, because it was Which just a generic grain. calls maize. Yeah. And so we call it corn because they're like, well, it's a corn. Corn TBD. So it's like how you have poultry... But chicken. And a poult so, is, a, is a young a young fowl. Yeah. I think it's a young turkey, so, specifically. What's my fun fact about corn? And also corned beef. It refers to the, uh, the small chunks of salt that were used to prepare the beef. So it's corned. It's prepared with corns of salt. Huh. Yep. <laughs> uh, they also had weapons, uh, loom weights, and glass beads. So these finds suggest, again, a materialism. Boy, they are really harping on this materialism. I and know, sophistication right? never before seen in a British Bronze Age settlement. So, and the article again says, even 3,000 years ago, people seemed to have a lot of stuff. Get off it. Like, <laughs> leave them alone. Many of these objects are relatively pristine, suggesting that they had only been used for a short time before the settlement was engulfed by fire. Because the settlement was relatively new or because they kept stuff in good working order and so they would like replace it or swap well, it out. I didn't get a sense of how long people had been living there. So okay. yeah, I don't know. Keep in mind, this is a very small settlement. So it may have been like a seasonal thing or just a group of people starting to set up shop. Yeah. Um, but the, if they had yeah, time moving to... in from the dry lands, they parked <laughs> to there. To become the swamp folk. <laughs> No, well, I, you know, they had time to set up a flax, you know, a linen industry. I don't oh, know. Yeah. Well, maybe they know. quit their big jobs in the Bronze Age city, decided to downsize, come out, let's take not, up artisanal weaving. Let's not disseminate hey. misinformation and just <laughs> rampant speculation to our listeners. <laughs> don't listen to Amber. I don't mean, listen do listen to, to Amber. Oh, you know, don't start listening to me for a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's still my turn. Yes. Um, so this was a really small settlement. So these were just only five houses so far have been found at the Must Farm settlement. And each one was built very closely together for a small community of people. So each house would have housed maybe six people. So 30 people-ish living here together. And every house, this was like a, a, like a community housing project like every house seems to have been planned in the same way with similar layouts within the house so area for storing meat another area for cooking or preparing food and these houses were like i said built on stilts above a small river so a tributary of the cam and the conical roofs were built of long wooden rafters covered in turf clay and thatch and then the floors and walls were made of wickerwork 
And then that was all held in place by a wooden frame. And so the, the wicker work, it sounds drafty, but it would have been covered over. But it's sort of like a wattle and daub situation. They would build, build like a, a basket yeah. work type frame for the house and then plaster it over with kind of a muddy mixture of stuff that would then sounds, uh, provide insulation. kind of nice. It's cozy. Yeah. Um, and then this was really cool. So um, one more thing that was found at the Must Farm Settlement were around 18 pale green and turquoise glass beads. And analysis has shown that these were probably made in the Mediterranean basin or the Middle East. So there was a trade network in place here for those to have wound up so far away from where they were made. So that's really cool. We don't know much about that yet, but it does appear that <laughs> things were happening in the wetlands. <laughs> and probably because they were on a, a waterway, you know. I, yeah. I have no idea whether this trade was occurring over land or on the rivers, but uh, they were sort of ideally placed, if if soggy. It's very cool. Yeah. All right. So there's my context. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Okay, so now that we have something closer to a backdrop for what life at Cloud Holland might have been like, uh, let me give you all some more details about this site in particular. So, as I mentioned up top, Cloud Holland is on the island of South Wisht, on this, which is the second largest island of the Hebrides. So the Hebrides are the islands off the coast of, of Scotland. On, on the larger islands, you have something called a mahir which is a geographical term for the fertile, low-lying, grassy plains uh, along the coast of Ireland and Scotland. And there's some, um, there's some thought that maybe the Mahir is, is anthropogenic, that um, it used to be woodland, but humans in the Neolithic cleared it. It's not quite a grassland. It doesn't work quite like grassland because it's also kind of duny. 
Oh, um, okay. So this the sediment underneath is more yeah. Sandy. So it's like right up against the coast. So it's right, like seeing okay. like like rolling plains, but next to the water. It's it's a Ooh, sort of neat. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, and um, did you ever go to the Hebrides? I didn't. I spent a semester in Edinburgh and really didn't do very much travel outside of the city, except for like the immediate environs, like to go hiking. Yeah, yeah, because I have um, uh, some friends who've gone, um, who've gone there either because they were in school there or they live there. But the photos are gorgeous, uh, but it looks like super blustery all the time. Um, and so back in the Bronze Age, there was some here grassland, but a lot of it was covered by what we call living dunes. Um, and so living dunes are the ones that can shift, that move. So as the wind blows, the dunes move. The whole um, thing. The whole thing moves. Uh, and it's like, over time, it's a really incredible phenomenon. Uh, but it's like it's, sand glaciers. Yeah. And so it's like all beautiful and, and eerie until it's like crawling up on your like field or your house. So it is a bit threatening because <laughs> it will yeah, slowly I'm- consume you. I'm getting like um, a weird amount of anxiety right now <laughs> listening yeah. to this. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's so beautiful, but deadly. <laughs> uh, and so strangely enough, this like very dynamic landscape was the preferred habitat for farming communities throughout the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and the Viking period. And so they liked a challenge. here, yeah, seriously. And so here, the Bronze Age is understood to be around 2200 BCE to 800 BCE. The Iron Age from 800 BCE to 900 CE and the Viking period from 900 to 1300. So, yes, Mm yes. Um, And so there have been over 200 ancient settlements from these periods. So, I mean, that's a long time to find. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a little over like 3,000 years, but still 200 ancient settlements for a fairly small island. Um, And so they've been found on just the Meher of South Wicht. And sometimes they're visible as low mounds and identifiable by the shells, pottery, and bone found because there's bunnies all over. And so the rabbits will burrow. And as they're burrowing, they kick up material. (laughs) Uh, And so it's great that they like tip off archaeologists to evidence of these settlements, but they're also destroying the stratigraphy. (laughs) And so between 1989 and 2002, Two mounds were excavated there in Cloud Holland. And this is where things start getting exciting. Okay, I'm going to so. close the script here so I can't see anything. Okay. I haven't, okay. I swear, listeners, I haven't read ahead. I have no <laughs> idea what's about to happen to me. I'm, I'm going to give you some of kind of the archaeological narrative, but also take you through the archaeological excavation. So okay. we're going to be, we're going to be doing some time warping here. Yeah, stay with me. Okay, here we go. So around 1000 BCE, a terraced row of roundhouses was built. So we mentioned those roundhouses above when you were contextualizing. Um, (laughs) These were not built on stilts, I imagine. No, these were built on on dirt. The dry lands. At Clad Holland, there also were these little U-shaped houses that were very much domestic spaces. But unlike those... These roundhouses in the terraced row, and so terracing is where you cut away, where you like cut and grade the earth, like on a hillside Mm -hmm. to make it level. 
So it would it would be sort of like split level. You can imagine <laughs> that, like split level roundhouses. Great. Um, yeah. Um, so these were constructed in monumental form. So very thick walls of sand faced with stones and with floors sunken below ground. Each of these were about three times bigger than the U-shaped house, and they were built together as a terrace-sharing party walls. So since they were connected, the, the roofs must have required vast quantities of long timbers. And remember, I said, like, this is sort of a grassland that... Oh, they yeah, they took so, away all the trees. Yeah, so it was probably driftwood. Um, oh. The timbers would have been drift timbers, and they would have been lashed together with turf and reeds. And cool. it's unclear how many houses were in the row, because only the northern three houses in the mound have been excavated, and the edge of a fourth has been located. But the thing that's most interesting about these roundhouses isn't what happened in the houses, but under the houses. For for building the foundation of these houses, they dug out these great circular holes, because remember, the they're like semi semi-subterranean. Before the the pits for the roundhouses were dug, a line of closely spaced large pits was dug and then filled in along the east side on a northeast-southwest axis. So they, they and, dug holes and then filled them in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So they're like, we're going to build, we got to build this row of big old roundhouses. Let's dig some small holes and then fill them back in. And uh, those digging these pits appear to have used the summit of Ben Moore as a sight line to follow. Okay. Which I'm guessing that Ben Moore means... Ben Mountain. Because the a thing more, is that Ben means hill as well. So I believe so it's it means a hill, hill hill hill. It's a hill hill. Oh, geez. Because Ben Nevis is also a mountain, right? So like Ben is a very typical, it's like Mount, it's saying like Mount something. Interesting. Hill hill. So they use the summit of hill hill as a sight line to follow. So whether there was, that was just, there was some significance or they're just like that way. That's a big thing to look at. Yeah. <laughs> do that. Just square it up. So these pits that had been dug were immediately filled in again with clean sand. One contained a pot and another had fragments of a human skull and cremated bones, but otherwise they were empty. I mean, that in itself is spooky. Yeah. Super spooky. I and don't so like prepared holes. No sense of why these pits were dug. And, okay. and also... Like um they were filled in shortly after being dug. Okay. And whether that's like in the same season or immediately, but I, I don't know. Cause I guess the way you, you excavated it, it was like a really clean, like clean lines. Right. For without the, time for, for yeah, slumping to happen yeah, inside exactly. the holes. Um, and also if you've got a pot and then fragments of a human skull and cremated bones, was that even intentionally put in there? Or were you like, I'm done with lunch, toss it in, and then do, like some guy was really phoning it in on his like whole lunch duty. was a yeah. your lunch was a cremated human skull. No, 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 and then like you're filling it in, and like somebody happened to, you know, foul play or something. But whatever, we're getting we're getting in the in the weeds here, we're getting in the dunes, uh, because the next stage was most dramatic. The house interiors were dug out, each to the depth where they occupied, they encountered the tops of buried occupation layers from earlier centuries. So they oh, okay. dug down to, so they, you know, they did a great, they did a great job of like dig until you hit something. 
Hey, archaeology. <laughs> that school of <laughs> that school of excavation. Now we're digging down to depth B, which is, is even lower. They're digging pits. This is like pits on pits on pits here. But they're digging pits. They dug pits into the bottom of each foundation. Okay. So of, of each house. So we've got like a minimum of three pits here that, that we've excavated. And into each of those went human skeletons. And in the northernmost house, there was also a skeleton of a sheep buried there. So here we go. <laughs> the next line that Sheffield says, which I'm quoting here, living on top of dead bodies might seem like a strange thing to do. I mean, okay. Jeez. Well, <laughs> I mean, we kind of all are, if you think yeah. about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, each house was a dwelling. So it was it was designed as a domestic dwelling and it had a central fireplace and a peat floor, which sounds like a terrible idea. Well, it's dried. The peat oh, okay. is dried. So okay. it's just nice like and a, like spongy. A heavily, like, a highly flammable floor. Oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, great. no, like here's my, this is my, my fireplace. The floor is made of dryer lint, like that sort of thing. <laughs> but okay. yeah, fair enough. <laughs> there were differences among the houses. But it's, it's unclear whether each was inhabited by a family, which given the size, it would have been like an extended family with like multiple generations and sort of degrees of of cousinage. Yeah, sure. Um, um, or maybe it was groups divided, divided on the basis of age, gender or social status. So it could be like parts of a community that lived in these houses. And so the middle house was the largest and the longest lived in. So eight successive floors were laid together with complete rebuildings over a 600 year period until its abandonment in about 400 BCE. The presumed inhabitants were, must have been um, pretty well off um, since there was a front porch. <laughs> and, That's how you um, know you made it. When the house was first rebuilt, so house B, uh, they made an offering on the floor of three bronze chisels, which did they or did they drop them? Unclear. Right. Yeah. They made during an offering its, by going like, ah, it's hot. <laughs> uh, during its fourth to fifth phase, they sacrificed two dogs and buried them under the floor with the cremated sheep. Oh. Yeah. So they're I mean, doing that a one, lot. That one was on purpose, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah, you didn't drop two dead dogs in the floor. Uh, be like, oh, where'd that dog go? The North House was rebuilt twice, and thereafter a series of flimsy buildings occupied the spot. A lot of judgy articles coming out about the British Bronze Age here. This like, building was flimsy. <laughs> it was flimsy. Um, and it's full of too much stuff. <laughs> too much stuff, flimsy, two stars. <laughs> Would not go back. Um, although it had a central fireplace, now we're talking about the North House. The North House had a central fireplace, but it was not an entirely normal dwelling. Before okay. construction of its third phase, a newborn baby was buried under the floor, and Ooh. nine and nine post holes contained pieces of cremated human bone. And so, post mm. holes are where you put like a timber or like a post, like for what a it tent. sounds like. Yeah, it's it's just like it sounds like. And so you use post holes to determine the, the kind of perimeter of 
of tent structures or more ephemeral Just, yeah, architecture. structures, yeah. To cap it all off, as if that weren't wild enough, there was a cremation pyre platform. So the actual place where bodies are burnt directly outside the door. Ooh. And so this has been termed the house of the dead. Yes. Um, and it seems to have been intimately linked with death and perhaps the people who lived here, whether part-time or permanently, were priestly or ritual specialists. That was a funeral home. It could be. The southern house. So I remember we're on the north house. Yep. So we, so we got a north house, house Middle of dead. House. Yeah, north oh, house, okay. house of dead, cremation pyre outside, real, real rundown later. Middle house, big. Great. Big, beautiful. South house was the smallest and poorest and also the shortest lived. Okay. After only one phase, it was abandoned. Unlike the bronze bracelet left on the floor of the north house or the chisels in the middle house, the only offerings here were two large stone chopping tools. After this house had filled with windblown sand, it was turned into a field for plowing and spade digging. I like the suggestion here that if they had given better <laughs> better offerings, maybe it would have lasted longer. <laughs> um <laughs> Remember when I said that there were skeletons buried in pits under each of these houses? Tell me about them skeletons. Yeah. Yeah. This is where it gets bonkers. I'm ready. Okay. So the middle house. What do we know about the middle house? It's big. Yep. It's big and? Really nice. It was and, the longest occupied. And lasted a long time. Yes. Okay. Great. Good. I'm listening. Excellent. You're listening. No, I'm just, I'm just reinforcing points so that everyone can follow my amazing, scary story. The Middle Houses Human Foundation Deposit, which is a terrifying phrase itself. Uh-huh. So this human foundation deposit was the corpse of a young teenager, probably a girl. Mm. Uh, but her body was placed in a crouched position on its right side. Like fetal position. Kind of the fetal position, yeah. Her fragile skeleton yielded no indication of how she had died. So more surprising than running into a young woman at the bottom of a foundation deposit in the middle one were three other skeletons, one in the south house and two under the north. And so under the south house was a child, what well, an infant of about age to about three months old but it had died about 300 to 200 years earlier wow so earlier than when it was buried as a foundation deposit oh um its bones were no longer joined together except for the spine and pelvis and they helpfully say that it had no doubt rotted long before it was buried so, so it, they were in the process of building a house and they dug up a dead baby and buried it again in the foundation of that house. Possibly. They definitely didn't. That that was not a newly dead baby when they put it there. Okay. Um, and so that's under the south house. So we got south house, baby. Middle house, teen. North house, grown-ups. So the two burials oh. under the north house were both adults and had similarly died centuries before. Wow, so, this is so, weird. Yeah. One was male. And one was female. Uh, uh -huh. The female was aged about 40 and her crouched body appears to have been tightly wrapped for the 300 years during which it was kept before burial. The excavators remarked that they looked like mummies from Peru. Yeah. Like, you know how the mummies are, are like really tightly like flexed? Sitting. Yeah. And like they're, they're, they've got their knees drawn to their chests. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's flexed like that. Sometime after her death, so sometime between death and burial as a foundation deposit, her upper lateral incisors, so the two teeth next to her front teeth, were removed and placed in each hand. Ah! Uh, and I'll tell you about the other guy more in a minute. Um, so what wait, was strange? Wait, wait what was, no, shut up. What was strange to excavators about these burials was how intact and highly flexed the bodies were, just like the mummies found in Peru. And they were like, OMFG, did we just find mummies? Did they? Yeah. Yeah, they found mummies. Ah. They, they found like first ever mummies in Britain. But, like they realized they had to have found mummies. Because the only way that these skeletons could have maintained their form over so many centuries, especially if they're just like hanging out, not being buried or not being buried there, unclear, is if the connective tissue had remained intact. Because right, your bones stay together by by ligaments. And so if you preserve the stuff around the bones, the bones stay there. So this site, Clad, Clad Holland is... Like contemporaneous with the reign, uh, roughly contemporaneous with the reign of King Tutankhamun. I'm not saying that they're at all connected, but just think about like where you are in different parts of the world. That's really interesting. Yeah. So like that we've got this like super well understood, well documented, like art and science of mummification happening in Egypt. And then over here in like in the Hebrides, you've got these Bronze Age Britons being like, well, we got to preserve this, but how? And so this is a local innovation. They figured they had a need and that need was to keep dead people around. And they, they met that need. And so they were like, okay, well, it seems like maybe, so we've got, you know, clue one that we've got mummies. They look like mummies. <laughs> and like, and then clue two came with looking at gut bacteria after death. The bacteria in your tummy starts just like keeps eating working. You. It's so it starts eating you. It changes the the texture, the surface of the bone, and then further down by riddling it with tiny holes because you got tiny little bacteria. You're like chomp 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 on your bones. You You're can, making this disturbingly cute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the degree I love this. <laughs> the degree of bacterial damage can be tested to a pretty high de- with a pretty high degree of accuracy using a forensic procedure called mercury porosimetry. You're measuring how porous it is. And so the results of this test on the bones of the mummy the putative mummies from Claude Holland, um, it showed the decay started but ended abruptly. And so there are two ways that that would have happened. One, they would have removed. So the, the process is called evisceration, uh, but they would have. Oof. Yeah. So they, they would have removed the thing giving the off the tummy bacteria or they put them in a, an acidic environment. And what do we got around them? That's acidic. Peat. Peat bogs. Yeah. So that's why I had also asked you to look up bogs, but. Then I remembered the rest of the story and was like, oh, never mind about that. So I sort of like threw you off. It was a red herring. It was a red herring. (laughs) So remember, first clue looks like a mummy, highly articulated. Second clue, Mm -hmm. um, minimal bacterial uh, damage to skeleton. Third Mm -hmm. clue, which got it in the bag, is demineralization of the bone surface. When you put something in a bog, 
um, oh, this is giving me like flashbacks to when I was a kid and like weird science projects we did. So tell me if I remember correctly that quote unquote science projects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when something is bog mummified with like preserved mm-hmm. in a bog, it preserves the soft tissues because it's like an anaerobic environment. So it can't, yeah. it doesn't rot, but the acidity demineralizes the bones and it makes them all rubbery. That's right. And so you stop. So remember, these were straight up bones that they dug up. Was one of the experiments you did as a kid putting a chicken bone in vinegar? Yeah. Yeah, I did that too. Yeah. So I rescind my mocking you. Yeah. So if you do that, then you get like a rubber bone two days later and it's super funny. Yeah. yeah. They did a final test looking at demineralization of the bone surface because the, the peat bog works from the outside in. They did an analysis and just the outer two millimeters of the bone had been demineralized, which means that depending on how strong this bog was, how acidic the bog was, they just kind of dipped it in the, the bog for six to 18 months. Wow, they like they pick, cured it. They, they pickled them. Wait, so you mentioned two mummies, right? There was a, You said the female with the crazy teeth in hand situation, yeah. which I don't like at all. Um, what about the, the male mummy? Who was that guy? I think you mean who were those guys? What? The second mummy what? W- was... <laughs> the second mummy was a skeleton not of one person, but of three. <laughs> no! Yeah. Amber, no. (laughs) So the head and neck, not just head, head and neck was from one man. The mandible was from a second. And the rest of the body. (laughs) The rest of the body was from a third. (laughs) So this is, this was the thing that I learned like a while back where I'm just like, don't ever look up this site, Anna, because I'm going to tell you about it because it spooked me out. It chilled my very contiguous bones. Did they have just like um, most of one guy and they were like, no, 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 because the head and jaw, like the woman and the infant, were about 300 to 400 years old before burial. But this the makes body. No sense. But the body belonged to a man who had died 500 years before that. Okay. And they were like, what is going on? What's up? Like, that is bonkers. What's up with this lady? Because Terry Brown, a professor of biomedical archaeology at the University of Manchester, said that um, there were clues that these bog bodies were more than they seemed. And he suspected that maybe the female was not just one person either because the jaw didn't fit into the rest of the skull. (laughs) So that why she was carrying her own teeth? Yeah, she was. Yeah. So the mandible didn't fit on and they were just like, hey, Mike Parker Pearson of Sheffield University, can you try to DNA test this? And how many um, people is this person? I know Mike Parker Pearson. (laughs) No, 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 no. The mummy. How many people is this person? um, So of these, we've got these two mummies, these, the male mummy female mummy six individuals represented (laughs) and so brown sampled people yeah 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 franken mummies so terry brown sampled dna from the female skeleton's jawbone skull arm and leg and the results show that bones came from different people none of whom even shared the same mother he said 
these weren't people who were related to each other. It wasn't like this like family amalgam or something. It was just like different parts of people. And so researchers proposed that perhaps, quote, the skeleton was reconstructed as a means of merging ancestries. This is just wild. Like, I don't know. The, so the female is made from body parts that date to around the same time period. At least three people would had to have gone through the same process of partial bog preservation and then get stitched back together. This is fascinating. And then, um, so around the same process, but isotopic dating shows that the male mummy is made from people who died a few hundred years apart. Is this like ancestor worship kind of deal? Right. So we've got two mummies with a minimum of six individuals between them. Right. Plus the poorly preserved remains of a child in another house. Right. And the remains of a teenager in a third house. In each case, someone died, was deposited in a peat bog for about a year for the explicit purpose of preserving them. Then they were fished back out and then presumably set up in the roundhouses for a few centuries. Because remember, they were the woman was tightly lashed like she was Mm -hmm. tied up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these people... Like each of these were out for a few centuries before being reburied. So they were just kicking it in these houses upstairs. And then over this time, the man's head was replaced and then eventually his mandible was replaced. (laughs) It's so easy for those to get knocked off if you have rowdy kids. Right. And then finally, they were all buried in the foundations. So my question to you, Anna, this is when you can open up your script. My question to you, Anna, is what the F is going on over at Clad Holland? (laughs) <laughs> and now you you go to page eight. Yes, I see it. It's <laughs> the cover of R.L. Stein's seminal Goosebumps work, Say Cheese and Die. <laughs> and it's just thank you. like thank you for that. It's just like a well articulated skeletons. skeletons. And that's chilling what I and grilling, <laughs> having a picnic. Very nineties skeletons too. I know. Look at those mom jeans on that. Those mom lady. jorts are great. I would love a pair of those mom jorts. Also, Boy. I have that haircut. God. So. Ah! So nothing like this has ever, has been found elsewhere in the Hebrides. And before this discovery, no one thought that mummification had even happened in prehistoric Britain. But then in 2015, Thomas Booth of the Natural History Museum in London, he did a little metaphorical digging. So he was interested. He's like, well, we found that. I wonder if these other other remains that we found may have also been processed like this. And so he was interested in the damage to the bones caused by gut bacteria. So he looked at bacterial tunneling in the bones of over 300 British archaeological skeletons dating to various periods. Um, and so as expected, almost all bones from most periods were filled with bacterial tunnels. Okay. Great. Um, but around half of the samples that dated to the Bronze Age showed little or no sign of bacterial tunneling. Wow. So about half of what he looked at from the Bronze Age, someone had a deliberately stopped uh, bacterial tunneling. So they had deliberately preserved the body. Huh. And so the Bronze Age skeletons, which bore this signature, came from sites located all over Britain, stretching from northwest Scotland, you know, Claude Holland, to yeah. southeast England, which is um, over in Kent. So it's happening all over. Yeah. This was the first evidence that mummification was practiced all over Bronze Age Britain. I Um, never knew about any of this. I know, right? So we've got mummies all over Britain in the Bronze Age. But were they all bog mummies, Anna? Probably not. No. 
So the Neats Court skeleton, so Neats Court, which is on the island of Shippy in Kent, which when I looked it up, all I found was a listing for a very attractively priced tract of land. If you're interested in making an investment with me. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> Support us on Patreon. Yeah. Patreon.com slash we'll the podcast. Buy some land. In Neats Court, um, skeletons demonstrate macroscopic discoloration and fissuring. So fissuring is like, like cracking. cracks. Yeah. Like yep. Little, little cracks consistent with low level heat treatment. Or were they? Suggesting <gasps> that these bodies may have been mummified by desiccation through smoking. <laughs> In contrast, the Bradley Finn skeletons, which are elsewhere in Britain. Uh, <laughs> Again, Fen. So it's a similar. Yeah. Yeah. Type so um, they yeah. So they're on a Fen. So it's a wetland area. So they mm-hmm. display no postmortem um, alterations that are indicative of, of a particular method of mummification. But their provenance close to substantial wetlands does raise the possibility that they were preserved through initial deposition within watery anoxic environments. So okay. we've got definitely mummified. Like definitely dipped in a bog, um, and then God knows what happened to them up in Clad Holland. We've got definitely smoked, Person and then jerky. we've got possibly bog mummied. Um, and so fen, fen mummification is different from bog mummification. If I can just push up my um actually glasses well, for a second. So well, which which actually like further bolsters my point that. They had a they had a goal and that goal was to keep dead people around and people figured out they like used what they had. They used whatever tools they had in their toolbox to keep dead people around. Yeah, that's that's incredible is wild. It, It reminds me of. Oh, gosh, I hope I don't misattribute this to the wrong place. But somewhere in Indonesia, I think there is a group that um, they sort of every year they they pull out their ancestors, they they unearth their ancestors, and um, you know sort of perfume them and dress them up and and tell them about new family developments and sort of parade them around in a festival, and and then they put them back. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Villagers from Tana Toraja. Yeah. Um, that sounds familiar. Yep. They are Indonesian. They live on Sulawesi. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just found a, of course, a Vice article. Oh, Vice. Um, but though this looks really interesting. Um, I wonder if it's sort of the same principle where it's sort of veneration of your relatives by keeping them right there. This fits in and with whatever your understanding of life and death and like consciousness is this is clearly part of their sort of cosmology like their understanding of the world and how people fit in it and so maybe keeping them physically with you is is a is a way to keep them spiritually uh, spiritually or emotionally with you it's really fascinating and it's also extremely fascinating that up until 2001 nobody had the slightest idea that this even happened right Wow. But there's, but there, yeah, there's no getting around the fact that that is wild. That they're just, I love that they replaced broken parts. Well, well, yeah. Presumably. With the, with the female, it seems that they were, that it was just some intentional 
stitching together. But with the male, it's something that they were replacement parts. Incidentally. Yeah. Yeah. And so is this something that it's like, what does that mean? I don't know. But that's my story about Clad Holland. Oh, my goodness. Ah, that's all I got. (laughs) You've spooked me. Do you want to be an archaeologist now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. <laughs> oh gosh, that was a fun episode. That was great. We did so good. <laughs> oh, did you like my natural my natural transition? <laughs> uh, would you like to hear about some mummy updates? Absolutely. Right. I are there more like fariki ones, or more just like we're figuring out how it works? Um, more of the latter, but but but. Uh. Hmm? But it's huh. it's not really a twist. It's sort of like a, um, not an epiphany, but like a oh, like a like a an insight. That's the word <laughs> I wanted. Like a really interesting insight. <laughs> as I turn to camera B, <laughs> more at eleven. Okay. Um, <laughs> hey, I work for public radio now. I can De- developments at Claude Holland. What this means for your commute. <laughs> <laughs> and what this means for Bronze Age Britain. What were you doing? Um, okay. Yeah. So what's, All right. what's so, going on? So this Tell is based me. on a study that was published in 2020 by the University of Cambridge Press. And it is titled, Death is Not the End, colon. Radiocarbon and Histotaphonomic Evidence for the Curation and Excarnation of Human Remains in Bronze Age Britain. Would you like some definitions of that vocabulary? Histo, like, cells? Flesh tissue mm-hmm. yeah so histotaphonomic is processes affecting tissues after deposition or burial like what okay. happens to those bodies okay. yeah so curation is you know taking care of something excarnation defleshing yep yep okay so unmeeting un yep unmeeting it's an unmeet cute um okay oh I've had some of those. Like a date that makes your skeleton want to leave your body. Oh, I've definitely had some of those. <laughs> that wasn't what I, I had. I had an unmeet cute at a networking reception. Oh, boy. <laughs> so it's just where I'm just like, no. <laughs> okay. So the study deals with uh, 189 new and existing. So like samples from museums or from you know, previously excavated materials from a selection of deposits from Bronze Age Britain, um, providing new evidence for the curation of human remains for an average of two generations following death, while histological analysis of bone samples indicates mortuary treatment involving both removal of flesh and the exhumation of primary burial. So part of this we already knew, right, is that in Bronze Age Britain, they would they would bury the dead and then sometimes dig them back up for reasons. Yes, Amber. 
you okay. have your hand raised. I have a question. Mm-hmm. I have a question. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, my question is, um, so excarnation, yeah. removal of flesh, that is sort of a deliberate, like, I only want the bones. Is what, what that like is. Defle- like like primary defleshing? Um, I'm not sure. Because okay, here comes my real question: okay. exhumation of primary burials. Mm-hmm. That is something that also will, like, that is something that happens where you do like a primary burial and then it is defleshed through natural process, natural yeah. taphonomic processes, mm-hmm. and then you can exhume the skeletal remains mm-hmm. and like connective tissue, if any, and and so. To me, I'm hearing excarnation and exhumation of primary burials as being like two approaches to get the same product, which is bones. Bones, yeah. Is do I understand that correctly? I think to some extent, do, it's, it's, to your understanding, did yeah, I understand right. that correctly? <laughs> um, I think it's mostly recovery of bones after primary burial. Um, I didn't get the sense that anybody was sort of butchered, mm-hmm. but. If you remember um, some of the Bronze Age burials that we discussed four years ago uh, had been sort of smoked or pickled, which would preserve yeah. the flesh. So in those cases, yeah. I sort of wonder if there was a little bit of um, peeling of of the skeletal like a, remains. Like, just, like a little glycolic acid? <laughs> yeah, a little, a little uh, mask to rehydrate. No, I think, I think um, if it was a case of, of mummification, then I think if you just wanted the bones, you would have to remove some tissue. And I'm not sure if there's direct evidence for that. So my understanding is that it's mostly recovery of skeletons from previous burials. Good so far? I mean, not good, but... Great. I love this. Okay, great. Um, so this <laughs> is from British Bronze Age and very, very early Iron Age archaeological contexts. Okay. So that's around 2500 to 600 BCE. And this investigation looked at 32 British Bronze, that's hard to say, 32 British Bronze Age sites, including seven graves with relic bone grave goods. So that's going to be sort of our key thing here. Um, And between them, all of those sites, they contained relic bones from at least 13 different individuals who had all died up to 450 years earlier. So what's happening is that people are being buried with the bones of long dead ancestors or just long dead, presumably ancestors, long dead individuals who um, whose remains were exhumed and and likely curated above ground like Claude Holland. The, The mummies were sort of stored Yep. Yep. Hand tooth. Yep. This is an audio medium. I'm going to act out all of the mummies. Um, Is there any way to determine like a a genetic relationship between those? Um, I don't think that's been done yet, but yes, you would be able to sequence if if enough uh, DNA was preserved, if the bones are in. Would they be able to find like an actual, because if it's 450 years later, could you find, could you determine like a familial? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. Okay. It's not just like you're both from this island. Like, like, is it like how narrow can it be? be? Like this is a familial line versus this is a sort of like haplogroup kind of thing i think it would be more specific than haplogroup i think it would be at least you could say that maybe this was from the same um like settlement like you'd be able to say that that people here are interrelated in some way 
or you could okay. you could or you could get at direct ancestry through mitochondrial DNA. Or I, I guess like it would be almost as valuable to be able to say not from here. Like yeah, sort sure. of like this is a a bone relic that perhaps like through conflict, like like there yeah, was like like sort of if, to say like this I was a trophy that became that. a heredity, like a uh what what is it what is a an heirloom like yeah the sort of like passed Great down sort of thing triumph like would bone. it be would it be I don't think it's that and I'll tell you why I don't think it's that okay. um I think that these remains are curated through generations so mm-hmm. like the mummies get passed down so you know whose bones they are through through oral history presumably um the individuals whose bones are selected for re-inclusion with another burial yeah. are important yeah right so these are being selected as according to the article as special grave goods to accompany a more recently deceased and potentially important individual to the next world so you you have this is something that not everybody gets. You don't all get relic bones. Yeah. What I, what I was what I was suggesting was that this would be like if purely in the the realm of like the hypothetical, not uh-huh. reflecting any like knowledge or presumptions about how society was structured at this time. Uh-huh. But if you if your like third great grandfather were uh-huh. like responsible for Oh, had killing done a, great deed. a leader of like a, a rival yeah, community, okay. and then like this becomes sort of like if it was like a heroic action or something like or defeating mm-hmm. some entity, um, mm-hmm. like that sort of thing of like this is sort of a trophy because you think about when we talked about Michael Rockefeller and mm-hmm. the um, Asmat communities that mm-hmm. keep trophies, yeah, and. In, in sort of like inter-community. It's a known tra- practice, yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm just out here speculating. Just speculating. Mm-hmm. Wildly. Yeah. Um, Wildly. So, so this is a Bronze Age Britain thing. It's not just at Claude Holland. Uh, if if it were just Claude Holland and like the folks at Claude Holland just did this thing, that would be even stranger, I think. Um, but it's not. So... Here are some other examples from the 24th century BCE. There's a burial of a man near Stonehenge, not at Stonehenge. It was a burial site, but like near Stonehenge is the the biggest just close like by landmark. Yeah, just like how like your parents live in Boston. Yeah, my parents live in Boston. <laughs> they don't. Um, yeah, this is Stonehenge Metro West. <laughs> um the, this man that was buried in Stonehenge Metro West was accompanied to the afterlife by skulls and long bones, so limb, arm leg yes. bones, from at least four other people, one of whom had died 150 to 300 years earlier and two who had died up to 80 years earlier. So a couple generations ago. Okay. 20th century BCE, a woman was buried with fancy jewelry, including jet and copper beads and buttons and two copper bracelets. Nice. Uh Relic skulls and limb bones, again, belonging to a man and a woman who had died between 60 and 174 years earlier. Weirdly specific number. And a third skull from a child. And then finally, in the 18th century BCE, a man was buried with a whistle made from human bone. That feels like an outlier. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, I don't know what to to do with that. I don't either. But but I I want to get to the part that's... Let's get Lizzo to play that. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Actually, 
Mm. No, I don't want no. that for either party. No. No, don't honk that bone. bone. Don't, <laughs> don't honk that bone. So hypothesis for this practice, why they were doing it. So the, that's what this article kind of wraps up with. Yeah. And this was the part that I was like, oh, cool. It's not like I'm not saying that this is how these people thought or this speculate was happening. I know. Speculate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is the idea that grave goods, including these relic bones, were there, were provided specifically to help the deceased reach the afterlife, like their otherworldly destination. So the idea is, um, and the article says, I'm going to quote from it, it is conceivable that people in the British Bronze Age may have reasoned that the souls of the dead from whose bodies relics were taken had already made that journey and that they would therefore be well-placed to guide the more recently deceased to that final destination. It might even be that the community's care and curation enjoyed by those long-dead individuals would induce them to reciprocate by guiding important community members across unknown territory to the afterlife. So if you take care of your ancestors' bones... Yeah. Then in, you know, a hundred years, their descendant can take a a physical connection to the spirit of that person with yeah. them so that they have a guide to to get where they're going after death. Isn't that neat? I really wow. liked that. Yeah. I love that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's ah, that's great. Yeah, I love I love this story. And I know that I like, like that it, there might it, be meaning beyond like, ooh, spooky, oh, weird. Yeah. Well, that's that's like also, oh, what a great lesson. What a great lesson to to consider that it's like it, they, they weren't like they, they weren't, weren't doing weirdos. it to like freak people out. In the future. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like most most human behavior is not dictated by a desire to be edgy. Societies like come up with come up with with practices like culturally embedded practices that are significant and have like huge, huge importance. And this is more than just, um, I don't know. I'm always very captivated and, uh, sort of affected by, um, cultural practices that, that intentionally involve sort of deeper history than Mm -hmm. one's own memory that Mm -hmm. like when like the emergence of collective memory. And so if you are, if you are buried with bones like that have been curational, well, beyond that, like, like sort of like, I think like 450 years is something greater than like generational. I've heard lots of firsthand stories about sort of the great depression Same. and uh, yeah. world war two and, and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And so that's like, that's um, one thing, but this that's, is, that's a century or so. There are, there are people that we, we've talked about on this show who have like, so they have like secondhand knowledge of slavery in the U S. Yeah. Um, because they have, they, they, they are old enough that they were perhaps raised by or lived with someone who was elderly at the time. Like these things are real and these things are very immediately accessible for, for, some people's memories. Um, but this is longer than that. Like this yes. is, and, and like, this is something that I, and that like, this isn't exceptional. Like there are, they, there are lots of things that are sort of in all kinds of, 
all kinds right, of but places. It's a, it's a nuance that we didn't have before. And I'm, yeah. I'm glad that, and that, that we this, can add and, this. And so the, when you have these sort of physical expressions or sort of mm-hmm. um, like archaeological residues of these practices, I find that very... Um, I find that very compelling and very yeah. affecting because it makes it easier for me, someone whose relationship to the past and relationship to memory and relationship to like identity and heritage mm-hmm. isn't shared by by the, the, those communities who do like there are plenty of communities and and societies that um, this depth of depth of history and like depth of stake in their own history like is much deeper and I can um I respect that and I you know believe it and want to like do right by it but, yeah, but it doesn't mean I direct get experience it. to it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah even and right. sort of like I'm I'm yeah it's like ah I cannot relate but I can respect kind of thing yeah and exactly. this and this kind of thing that kind of tangible evidence of sort of the the length of 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 like uh, the, the the length of the the reach of memory in, into the past um it makes it i don't know it makes it easier for me to comprehend which like not that that's <laughs> Not that's that not that's the, the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was a a classic mm. from uh, Spooktober, and uh, maybe that was the first time you heard it, dear listener, because yeah, that's um, over on our old feed on SoundCloud that I'm still paying for. It's, it's <laughs> been curated for the past four years. Yeah. So. <laughs> all righty. Thanks everybody for listening. All right. You can find us in all the places you find us. Yep. And Happy some, Spooktober. Some you never expected. Spooktober. Mm. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Mm. Goodbye. <laughs>